Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. How you doing this morning? Fine. Good. Good. You're doing good. Stan, good to see you. Nice, nice to have you drop by. Good. What's going on this morning? Anything? Too early? I noticed that, you know, we're, we're, we're getting a little better at, um, at all this, but um, with, with those things up here, it still makes it tough. I think we just need to take the cardboard down. So you can kind of, oh, you don't, oh, you like the cardboard up. You can't see. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, now, you know what? I mean, that's just an excuse. You like it dark because it's better to sleep. <laughs> hey, quit. No, not at all. Question for you. Question for you to start off this morning. When you're confused and you're not sure which way to turn, where do you go for answers? Where you're confused and not... Where? Oh, there's always... To your wife. Oh, that's good. Jim, just thought I'd let you know, Joe said you turned to her. So keep that in mind for the future, would you? It's always the one whose husband's not right there that comes up with those little quick answers. But when you're confused, where do you turn? Where do you turn for answers? Where do you turn for direction? Where do you look for um, um, oh, an objective standard when you're lost and you're, and you're confused about your direction and you need a compass? Where do you turn to for objectivity? <clears throat> okay, some say the Bible. We'll talk about that in a minute. You know, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's Little League season again. and just uh, thought I'd let, You know, I used, to, I used to coach Little League because I enjoyed coaching and I enjoyed baseball and I enjoyed competition and I enjoyed all of that. Now I coach because I enjoy the illustrations. <laughs> That's the only reason. It's like, hey, do you want to coach? Why do you want to coach? They have a questionnaire. Why do you want to coach? I need the illustrations. And uh, so anyway, we'll have some. But yesterday was field day, the annual field day, where all these guys get out and they get rakes and shovels and hoes and picks and stuff that, that they've never seen before, actually, <laughs> until that day. You know, they're looking to borrow them from somewhere. And uh, one of the things that uh, we, well, I ended up in a conversation with one of the other managers, and it was interesting. He had just gotten back from a week of, um, uh, of spring break where he was with his son, who was a college student, and they, and they went to Acapulco for the week. And uh, now look, have you never seen people sit down before or what? It's like, it's amazing to me. You know, it used to be we had windows, right? And people would walk by, you'd all look out the window. Oh, people walking by. This is really something I've never seen before. <laughs> now we've got people who come and they sit down. It's like, oh, look, people walking down the aisle looking for a seat, trying to find one. Don't worry, you don't have a ticket or anything. There's no matching seat here. There's like, you know, 600 empty seats. We're looking for the ones that are on our tickets here. What? What is this? Is this what is this? Is this A, B, B, C, B, three, three, C, three, and four? There we go. Anyway, so so you know you get distracted so easily. So anyway, we're 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 doing this field thing, and I'm talking to this this uh, guy who's been a manager with me for a couple of years. And anyway, he had just come back from a weekend in Acapulco, Mexico, with his son and uh, 600 drunk, half-naked college students that were on spring break. So we start to have this interesting conversation. And he said, man, he goes, this is unbelievable. I said, it was unbelievable. He goes, you know, I just got back and, and he said, it's just unbelievable what was going on. Five, six hundred college students, drunk every day, half naked. And he said, this gal comes up to him and says, hi, how old are you? And he's thinking, this is going to be trouble. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm three years older than your father. Does that turn you on? <laughs> he goes, well, but, it was just, but you're so nice. You're just so nice. It's blah, blah, blah. And so we got in this conversation. He said, you know what's amazing? He said, frightening to me. He said, every night I saw different people pairing up with one another and going off to have sex together. He said, and, and finally we had this conversation with my son and these other people were sitting around. I said, hey, it's like, aren't you, aren't you worried? Don't you even think about, it? have you heard of AIDS? I mean, you even think about it? And he said, let me ask you a question. How many of you here, I mean, how many of you know of anyone that has the HIV virus? And uh, they all said, we don't know anybody. 
He said, you don't know anyone? He goes, that's just amazing because, you know, we read in the paper, we hear on the news of how prevalent it is and, and that your generation is speaking to them, that they're of greatest risk because of what's going on. He said, you don't know anyone? He said, I don't understand that. And then he found out why. Because they're all afraid to go get blood tests. They don't want to know. Then we started talking about something else. Then we started talking about drugs. We started talking about alcohol. And he had been to Singapore and he said, you know, interesting thing about Singapore is that Singapore is a totally drug-free country. He goes, you know how they did it? He goes, when you get on a plane and you go to Singapore, right before they land, they hand you a piece of paper. It says, Singapore is a drug-free country. If you're caught using or in possession of any narcotics whatsoever, you will automatically be found guilty and sentenced to death. And you will die immediately. And it won't cost the Singaporeans $22 trillion in taxpayer money to decide whether somebody's insane or not insane or guilty or not guilty. And he said what they did was for six months, they just warned everybody. said, look, you know what? This is what we're going to do in six months. And if you don't like it and you think that you'd be better off conducting your business somewhere else, we'll even give you plane tickets to leave. Six months went by. They warned everybody. And June 1st of a certain year, they decided it's going to be a drug-free country. And you know what's amazing thing is within 45 days, it was a drug-free country. And only 50 people lost their life. Everyone else got the message. Okay, so we're having this conversation, and this is interesting as we're raking a little league field. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, th then we get into um, our justice system. And then we can talk about how it's going to cost $8 million to decide whether somebody that chops people up and eats them is insane. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't, should it matter whether you're insane or not insane? When are we guilty of our actions? When are we responsible for our actions, whether we're nuts or not? And I, and I bring this all up because it was a, a tremendous conversation, and it took place with a man who does not claim to be a Christian, but he said this as a closing comment. He said, you know what? We have lost the moral fiber of our society. But then I stopped and I thought, well, wait a minute, by whose standard? By whose standard? See, when you're up against it and you don't know which way to turn, what do you turn to? What's the objective standard that we have? I love this story. It's a, it's a true story. And uh, on a foggy night... At sea, the ship captain saw what appeared to be lights of another ship heading toward his direction. So he instructed the signal man to contact the other ship by signal light, and he sent the message. Change your course 10 degrees to the south. And the reply came, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The captain responded, I am a captain. Change your course 10 degrees to the north. The response came back, I am a seaman, first class, you change your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, the captain's upset and furious because no seaman, first class, is going to tell him to do. So he sent this one back. Tell him this, I'm a battleship, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The final reply was this, I am a lighthouse, you change your course 10 degrees <laughs> to the south. An objective standard. An objective standard. You know, and it's so dangerous because here's what happens. Where do you turn when you're in an emotional roller coaster and your head is in a fog and you don't know which way to turn and your emotions have you all messed up? And we know emotions are dangerous things. They're wonderful yet very dangerous. Where do you turn for an objective standard to help give you direction in your life? The Bible. The Bible? Okay, interesting. Where do people normally turn? Huh? All right, let's, let's, okay, let's talk about it. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> Phil Donahue. Hi. How are you today? So good to see you. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And what did you say? Geraldo. 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 <laughs> No, I am not Geraldo. Answer the question. Geraldo? Wait a minute, wait a minute. All right, now let's, 
this will be really embarrassing and I'm going to love every minute of it, okay? I learned this last week. I sat in the bathroom and I was like bored to death of the guy just standing up there just staunch. So I decided I'm never going to do that. I'm just going to run out and I'm going to bug you and drive you crazy. Keep you awake. You're sleeping. I'm going to smack you in the side of the face. Grab your tie. Don't give me your own medication. I don't want to hear that stuff. But it's like, y'all on medication. Every time. Huh? Oh, you yeah, he is, and, and he is speaking now. All right, all right, all right, all right. We got Geraldo. We got Phil. We got Oprah. We got Sally. We got Jenny. We got, who do we got over here? Who? Abby. Oh, we got Abby. Yeah, don't forget Abby. And her sister Ann. We got them both. Who else? Montel. We got Montel now. We got Joan. Oh, Rivers. As opposed to Joan Collins. Who else we got? We got Arsenio. We had Johnny. We still do for another month. Where do we turn for all the stuff? All right? We turn to other people. All right, other people. That would fall under a big category that we'll call humanism. We turn this way, horizontally. You got a problem? You don't know how to deal with it? Where do you go for answers? We go to one another. Not necessarily always bad. But the problem is, like Solomon said, when we are living life on the horizontal and we don't have a vertical perspective of what's going on, we could give each other the worst advice in the world. Somebody comes to me, I get scared to death. What do you think I should do? And then you do that a couple of times and no one comes to you anymore. So it works out pretty good. But what, you know, people ask you that. It's like, man, you know what? I don't ever want to tell anybody what to do. Because if they don't like what I tell them, they'll go ask you. And you know what you'll tell them? Exactly the opposite. They'll just keep going and looking for somebody until somebody they find tells them what they want to hear and that's what they're going to do. So I don't tell anybody what to do. But I'll tell you this. I will throw this out. Well, it doesn't really matter what I say one way or the other. What does God want you to do? You know, what does God want you to do? See, what humanism does is it eliminates that, that whole thing of, well, we need to check with God. Because I may tell somebody, hey, this is what God says, and I may be struggling with it myself. And if I'm doing it, and you're doing it, then if enough of us do it, it must be okay. And I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to crash and burn on the rocks. We need a lighthouse, an objective standard that's going to show us where we need to go. And that's the thing y'all better start paying attention to, and that is very simply this. Stop asking everybody else what you think you should do and start asking God what you should do. And that has a lot to do with what we're talking about, missions conference, okay? As, you know, and, and I don't want to be real derogatory, but you know, the sad thing about it is that I talk to people and it's kind of like you know, the, our annual turn everybody off to missions month. And, and, and I'm sorry that we have that attitude and we need to stop and think about why we have that attitude because... What we need to understand is, is that there's a, a reason, there's a purpose, and a lot of us don't know what it is. So we get turned off to it. And we need to understand what's going on. And that is that we're sending people all over the world to tell them how much God loves them. To tell them why they should believe in Jesus Christ. And then we say this, and here it is, right here, it says so right here in the Bible. Hundreds of millions of dollars and man hours are put into translating the Bible into the language of people so that they can understand it, so that they will know what to do. Maybe that simplifies everything. And maybe it will help us understand why we do what we do. But we got a problem. Because if you're not going to do what God tells you to do, then it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't matter what language it's in. It doesn't matter what culture it's in. So we turn to other people. We need to stop doing that. We turn to books. We need to stop doing that. We need to turn to self-help stuff. We need to stop doing that. We turn to psychologists. We need to stop doing that. We turn to psychiatrists. We need to stop doing that. We turn to drugs. We need to stop doing that. We turn to alcohol. We need to stop doing that. See, you know, humanism is just one problem. I'll tell you what. How else do people handle their problems? The self-help stuff. 
You know? And, you know, they're written by the experts. The experts. That always scares you, doesn't it? I'm an expert in this field. Well, I'm not, so I must listen to you. It just means that you may be more intelligent and more confused as an expert. Doesn't mean you're necessarily right. How about, how about people that avoid their problems? How about escapism? If I keep going fast enough and don't slow down long enough, I won't notice we're having a serious problem. Then we don't have to deal with it. So I stay busy at work because I got problems at home. Got problems with the kids, so I stay away from them. Got problems, so I turn to drugs. Got problems, so I just take off. Got problems, so I move. And I go from place to place and job to job and town to town and wife to wife and kids to kids and family to family. And I just keep on moving. Because as long as I keep on moving, I don't have to deal with anything. Escapism. Then we got these people who are like always, always concentrating on their problems. They're cynical. Not only do they face their problems, but they, all they do is they're absorbed by their problems. And then they get resentful and they get bitter and all they want to do is get even. They live by that bumper sticker, you know, I don't get mad, I get even. And all they think about is their problems and how they're going to get even with people who brought them into their life. And then we got this weird thing going on now where it's like people go to psychics and stuff now. It's like, you ever see all these little houses, man? They're converting into little goofy dens of nutsism with psychics and, and, and palm readers and tarot cards. And, and like, you know, let me just ask you one question about psychics and stuff. If they knew the future, then why ain't they rich and they don't have to work anymore? I mean, why are they charging you 10 bucks to look at your palm? If I knew about your future, I'd know about my future and I'd be able to bet on whatever I'd need to bet on and I'd win a ton of money and I don't have to charge you 10 bucks. Think about how stupid this is for a second. If they had a handle on the future, why are they doing what they're doing? And they go, oh, oh, I see you've had, you've had problems in your life. Oh, really? How'd you know that? Is it, has it been family problems? Um, 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 maybe close? No, no, not close. No, I bet like maybe distant relative, maybe some some relative though. How many have had problems with their relatives? Ooh, ooh, ooh! You're psychic. <laughs> you know, gee, you cut me a break, and we're so stupid that we turn to things like this. Now, here's the answer, right, y'all? Now, I've heard you say it. we should turn to the Bible. We should turn to the Bible. Now, 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 now. Don't get offensive or don't get offended. <laughs> I mean, don't get offensive, please. Don't get offended and don't get defensive. But I'm going to ask you a question. I'll do it. Oh, I see tragedy coming soon in your future. But good news for your wife. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah, the question. Now, listen to this. This is very important to what the whole missions conference is about. Like I said, we got people all over the world translating the Bible into local languages, right? To tell them God loves them. Tell them Jesus died for them. Tell them they need to trust in Him. Then we say, it's here, right here in the Bible. Read it. And I'm going to ask you, the, the, I mean, maybe this, is, maybe this is so basic that many of us have not really considered. But I want to just stop and think about this for a second. <laughs> why, why should I believe it? Because it's written in the Bible. Why should I trust it? Because it's the Bible. How many of you ever asked yourself that question? Okay, now, now we're going to get into some things that I want to talk about to help us to address that question. Why should you 
rely upon the Bible. Why should I trust the Bible? How accurate is the Bible? Is it really accurate? I mean, what can, I mean, and you hear things like, well, what can a guy like this guy named Isaiah? Isaiah, this guy Isaiah here, you know, here, 800 years BC, this guy Isaiah wrote this stuff. I mean, what does that have to do with the 21st century, the 20th century? That's Isaiah explaining to the rest of everybody else. <laughs> you know, what does that have to do with today? What does the Bible have to do with today? It's 2,000 years old. It doesn't understand. What's the Bible have to do with what's going on today in our culture? With this sexual revolution and the problems that we're having and, and justice and judgment and, and uh, you know, all the stuff that's going on. What does it have to do with business and recession and depression and problems? What does the Bible have to do with any of that? They didn't have any. I mean, man, they went out and, they, you know, they, they, they had a field and they had corn and then they had fish. And, and they didn't have, you know, space industry and they didn't have all these problems that we have. What does the Bible have to do with today? Why is the Bible reliable? Why is it accurate? Is it accurate? Isn't it accurate? Because if you don't have an answer to it, I'll guarantee you this. The first person that comes into your life that says, why should I believe the Bible, will have you turn into an absolute spiritual pretzel in a matter of about two seconds. And I'll tell you what will happen. You know what will happen? You'll start to doubt everything that you thought you believed. Oh. Why? Because we never ask ourselves the foundational question. Is this book that we come every week, that I open and I say, here's what it says, this is what we should do, is it accurate? How silly it is for us to make that assumption without knowing why it is. Now, can I, no, man, I don't even know how to do this without, okay, Um, let me ask you something. Somebody started to give an answer and hold up for a second because I want to ask you this. How do you know? How do you know that this book is reliable and trustworthy? Faith. Faith. Oh, duh. Show hope it's right. That kind of faith? No. Let me, uh, let me give the guy who said faith a chance to continue. Okay, faith in the Lord, leadership of the Holy Spirit. But I want to be a cynic here for a second and say, well, what do you mean faith in Christ? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Huh? Somebody want to help him out? What? Okay, well, here, you know, here to, to, to kind of run with the same thought, we read this. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing of the Word of God. All right, but I'm quoting the Bible when I say that. And we have to be ready to give a defense for the hope within us. So I'm quoting the Bible. It says, sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you, in season and out of season, every time, any place, anywhere, on a little league field, cleaning it up, at your office, at your home, with your relatives, wherever it is. You have to be ready to give a defense, to defend your faith. Okay, here's the story. Yes? Okay, there's a, there's. Okay, they they see the stability, they see the peace in the midst of circumstances that are beyond comprehension. But let me tell you something. I've seen people who aren't Christians suck it up, and and go through tremendous persecution, tremendous problems in their life. I've seen some people persevere under the most incredible pressure. And I look and say, how can they do it without knowing the God who created them? That's amazing to me. So I've seen the, the will of man be able to overcome tremendous things. Now, I've seen some people crack, too. I had a business associate. They couldn't handle it, and he hung himself in his garage. I mean, I've seen people not be able to handle pressure. But then, see, what I'm, what I'm trying to get across is that we, we have a... Hi, Miriam. 
Okay, and that's true. That faith, as we step out in faith, as we believe, what though? What do we believe? Okay. And that is pivotal, but let me be a let me be a cynic here for a second. The Bible says it's God's word, and the Book of Mormon says it's you know the same thing, and uh, the Quran says it's the same thing, and you know Joe Blow who writes a book says, hey, guess what? You can believe this because I just wrote it. You can trust me. See the problem that we're running into is. The problem is circular reasoning. What we're saying, and oftentimes as Christians, what we do is we use the Bible to prove our point when the person doesn't believe the Bible to begin with. And so what we need to do is go back to the answer that the gentleman in the back gave, and that was simply what? It is historically valid and reliable. Now, here's how it comes off. I, had a, I, had a, I was talking with a friend of mine, and, uh, and he's not a Christian, and we got into this conversation. And he said the same thing. He said, you know what? How can you believe the Bible? Because the Bible is, you know, just a book like any other book, you know? I mean, and it was written so long ago. I mean, how can you believe it? I don't believe the Bible is what you claim it to be. And the good news was this guy was a history major in college. Now, this is fun to talk to a historian about something that's historical. So I asked him this question. And this is a great question. You ask anybody that starts the question, you'll ask, but say this. Okay, I said, well, let me ask you something. What tests do you apply to any document to confirm the historical reliability of that document? After all, you are a historian. How do you, how do you test documents to see if they're accurate historically? And he looked at me kind of like you are and went, duh, duh. And the da, well, we weren't getting very far with the da's. So I changed it and I said, look, here, let me ask you a question, a specific question. Civil War. You weren't there. I wasn't there. You can't prove it scientifically that it ever took place. You can't conjure it up in a test tube. So historically, how do you go about proving the accuracy and the reliability of historical documents as to whether they're genuine and reliable or not? What tests do you apply? I mean, how do you sit down in a, in, a, in a classroom and read a history book, and how do you know for sure that the Civil War actually ever took place? There's, you know, there's interesting stuff going on now. You know, there's people that have come out and they've tried to deny that the Holocaust ever took place. Never happened. Never happened. Or we got people who say slavery never happened in our country. Oh, really? Okay. And, and, and here's the incident that came up and it really got me thinking about all this. We have a friend who was on a cruise. The majority of people on the ship were Jewish. And this one Jewish gentleman gave this gal a book. And the book basically said that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, was not who he claimed to be. That he was a liar. That he really wasn't who he said he was that he really wasn't schooled as he said he was, that he really didn't have the heritage that he said he did. And you know what? This, this gal came back and she was like, oh man, if that's true, then how can we believe what he wrote? And started to doubt everything in the New Testament. I said, man, that's a great question. So every book that someone writes is true because they say it is. Oliver Stone. Talk about a guy who has an agenda. And talk about leaving out facts for his purposes. Everything he promotes is propaganda. Everything he promotes is just a, a, a total slap on government and authority in the United States. And so he, write, he writes this script for a movie, JFK. And people walk out of the movie theater thinking, there's a major conspiracy. How do they come to that conclusion? Because they haven't checked into the facts. They went by this guy's word. By his 
presupposed point of view by taking what he believed and making it into a movie so that naturally the outcome of it was what he started, the same premise. The ending's what it was at the beginning. All he did was bring you along with him to come to the same conclusion by leaving out a lot of other stuff. You read a book that says the Holocaust never occurred and you read it and say, man, it must be true because somebody wrote it. I believe it. Man, we are in such a media-oriented age that our brains are all checked out. We believe everything that's on the news. We believe everything that's in a movie. We believe everything that we read and hear, and we don't check in any of the facts. Here's, here's the way this works, okay? Military historian C. Sanders. C. Sanders, military historian. These are the three tests that he applies to ensure that a document is reliable historically. And we need to know them. Because I'll tell you why we need to know them. Because it is a source outside of Scripture that is accurate, that is reliable, and that is used on every other document of antiquity that we now come to believe is true. It is a test, an objective standard, a lighthouse that says, hey, you know what? When we apply these three tests to the Bible, here's our conclusion. So when I talked to my history friend and said, hey, look, here's three tests that are applied to the Bible as well as any other historical document. The first one is very simple, and that's the bibliographical test. The second one is internal evidence, and the third one is external evidence. And I would recommend to everybody here that you take some time and you read how these three tests are applied. And we'll go over it briefly here. But uh, Josh McDowell is a great book, More Than a Carpenter. And he takes it and he explores this in detail. You talk about apologetic or defending your faith. He says, look, you know what? Apply these three tests to any literature, any historical document. He's got more than evidence and more uh, evidence in demand of verdict and more evidence in demand of verdict. Take some time and read this, okay, so that you understand. The next time you pick this thing up, there's not a question in your mind. The next time you share with somebody something that's in it, there's no doubt at all based on the historical uh, reliability of this document. And here's the first one, bibliographical text, okay? Basically, in a nutshell, it means this. Since we don't have the original documents... When were the copies made and how long a period of time was in between? You follow that? It's the transmission of the information. You don't have the original document. All we have here, this is a copy. This is a copy of the original documents. Since you don't have the original documents, how much time took place between the time the original ones were wrote, written and the time that the copies were made? How much time? Here's what he says. Compare it to this, the history of Thucydides, 460 to 400 B.C., available to us from just eight manuscripts, dated about 900 A.D., 1,300 years from the time in which they were originally written. All right? Here's the history of Herodotus. F.F. F. Bruce says the same thing. He says, no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their work, which are of use to us, are over 1,300 years later than the originals. Okay, Aristotle wrote his poems in 343 B.C., yet the earliest copy that we have is dated A.D. 1100. There's a 1,400-year gap from the time which he wrote to the earliest copies that we have. Caesar composes History of the Gaelic Wars between 58 and 50 B.C., its manuscript evidence rests on the authority of nine or ten copies that date 1,000 years after his death. Here's the point. The New Testament is embarrassing in contrast. There are over 20,000 copies of New Testament manuscripts today. The Iliad has 643 manuscripts and is second in manuscript authority after the New Testament. And the point is very simple. There is no one in classical literature or history that would deny the authenticity and the reliability of those events. The Gaelic War, the Iliad, you go down through it, the history of Thucydides, every one of them accept that. And yet here it is, they have 643, the Iliad has 643 manuscripts to support, and the New Testament has 20,000? 20,000? And you're going to doubt the reliability of it? 
You're going to deny the authenticity of it? You're going to question whether it should be valid or not? How foolish that is. Then he goes on and he says the internal evidence. And here's an interesting point. The internal evidence basically is this. That you have to assume that the document is reliable until the author in some way contradicts himself or until you, you recognize that there's factual errors. All right? Now, how do you do that? See, if you go in with a presupposition, an Oliver Stone type thing, I don't believe the Bible is true. Therefore, I will, I will prove that it's not true. And I will look for ways to prove that it's not true. And I will come to the same conclusion that I began with, that it is not true. You can't examine anything objectively that way. And so the point of the internal evidence test is basically this. I believe that it's true until it disproves itself. Now, how, do you, how does it disprove itself? Well, the internal evidence is interesting because it has to do with eyewitnesses. See, you got people saying the Holocaust doesn't exist. Okay, fine. So what do they do to prove that it does? They produce eyewitnesses to say that it did. Or they produce the testimony of eyewitnesses that said that it actually occurred. And the, and the point is this. If I'm an eyewitness to something, I could see something and be really distorted. And I can misinterpret the facts. Give you an example. Okay? I, see, um, I see Bill driving down the street with some babe in his, in his car. And I look at that and say, ooh, Bill drove down the street with some babe in his car. Uh-oh, he's fooling around. All right? Now, did I see that? Yes. But did, I, but did I come up with my own interpretation? Absolutely. Why? Because somebody else says, oh, I saw Bill driving down the street with the same babe too, and that was his wife. Oh. Okay, never mind. See, I, I've totally distorted the whole picture. And so eyewitnesses, and basically here's what we need to do. Look at, open your Bibles for a second and just take a look at something. The ability of eyewitnesses to tell what they saw. Look at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. This is critical. Because the historicity of any event that we were not present to see, therefore must believe by the accounts of someone else, is validated by the eyewitness testimony. If you've got people who were there and clearly were able to, the ability to tell the truth, people that were there, people that saw it, people that heard it, even though they even may be dead, the journals and records of people who have seen it. Um, we've got historical accounts. We've got today, we've got, you know, a hundred years from now, what do people say? Oh, I don't believe that this really happened in 1992. How do they know that it really did? We've got newspaper accounts, we've got archives, you've got news reports, you've got newsreels, you've got films, you've got books, you've got documentation, you've got evidence, you've got testimony. All of those things are available to validate the truth of today for those who come after us tomorrow. And it's no different when you look back at biblical times. And so here's Luke chapter 1, and Luke writes this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. It's a medical term that we get our word autopsy from. He went through it and just tore it apart. He was an eyewitness that investigated the facts, who's put them together, and he said, this is what I have found. And he says, from the very beginning, uh, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most, most excellent Theophilus. He says, hey, I was an eyewitness. I investigated the facts, and now I'm going to lay them out for you. In, the, in, the, in Peter's, 2 Peter, it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. John 19.35, And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. The things that I've seen are true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. I have seen it with my own eyes. Thomas himself said, until I see Jesus risen with my own eyes, until I touch him with my own hands, then I'll believe that he is who he claimed to be. And Jesus came and he saw him with his own eyes and he touched him with his own hands and he fell down before him and said, my Lord and my God. Until I see it myself, then I'll believe. 
Well, you know what? That's foolishness for people today because you will never see the Civil War and yet you believe that it existed. The same test, test has to be applied to Scripture as well. Until I see it myself, we will never see those things that took place at that time. But there are eyewitnesses who tell us that it existed. Until I see the Holocaust myself, I won't believe that it happened. How foolish of us. We will never see history before us. Yet we believe it's true. And so the Bible clearly points out over and over again. Here's Luke 3.1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonus, and, and Lysonius was tetrarch of Abilene. And he goes through and he records historically what was going on at the time. That's like saying when George Bush was president of the United States and Dan Quayle was his vice president. And he lists people historically that were accurate that you can go back and look back on and say, Hey, is that right or is that wrong? Is it a fact or is it, is it, is it mistaken? And until you find mistakes, you've got to believe that it's true. And then he goes on in Acts 2. And here's an interesting argument that we need to consider. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him and your midst. Guess what? Just as you yourselves know. Do you know what the, you know what the Bible has the audacity to do? It has the audacity to record that there are people who did not believe that Jesus was God. It has the audacity to record that there are those who were skeptics and cynical about the claims of Christ. And yet it also has the audacity to say this. Listen, you. We saw it and you saw it. And you know what? And if they didn't see it, all they had to do was say, we never saw any of that. We never heard of any of that. And when Paul was preaching before Festus and King Agrippa, he said this. Hey, King, you yourself know that all these things that I say to you are true, you have not only heard it, but you have seen it. And you know it's true. And I'll tell you what you do. When you tell somebody, hey, you saw it too. If they didn't see it, all they had to do is look at you and say, you're nuts. That never happened. What are you talking about? You're off your rocker. But they didn't do that. They didn't do that at all. They're just trying to come up with answers for it. It's not that it didn't happen, because it did. The eyewitnesses saw it. They testified to it. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 more witnesses saw the resurrected Christ. And he spent 40 days with his disciples. And he continued to teach them of the things of God. Acts chapter 1. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They fellowshiped with him. They saw him. And that's probably why they died for him. Because who's going to die for a lie? Who's going to die for some nutso who claimed to be God and wasn't? Because he is. See, the internal evidence has to do with eyewitness reports and accounts that document the fact that it was true. It is historically reliable. The third test that he throws out is external evidence. External evidence. What outside of the document itself proves that the document is reliable? What other writings are there? What other historical documents? See, you can have a guy who says, you know what? Um, the Apostle Paul really wasn't a Jew. And he can write a book. You know what? You can write a book on anything. As long as you find some lame publisher who will publish it and they think they can sell it, you can write about anything. They don't care whether it's factual or that, that you've got evidence or not. They just want to publish it. Not all publishers are that way, but there are a lot that are. And so if you want to write a book on something, you just sit down and write it. If it's interesting enough to people and they think it will sell, it will be published. But what makes you an authority? Because what we'd have to do is apply these three tests. The bibliographical text, the internal test, and also the external test. Meaning this, you've got a book that says the Holocaust doesn't exist, and there are hundreds of thousands of volumes and evidence that say that it does, historically. So what do you believe? You believe the, the, the one with the preponderance of the evidence. you got newsreels. you got 
eyewitness accounts. You've got testimony. Um, you've got... Um, uh, what else? What? You've got photographs. You've got all of that that say, this happened! Whether you want to believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It's a fact. It's true. The external evidence is that which is outside of this book to help you understand that it validates what this book says. Now you think, oh, you know what? What does this have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with everything. Because here's the way I look at it. If I talk to someone who's skeptical and they say, I don't believe. I don't believe what's in here. I don't believe that it's accurate. I don't believe it's reliable. I don't believe that it's relevant. I don't believe that Jesus claimed to be God. I don't believe that he rose from the dead. I don't believe he has the power to forgive sin. I don't believe he died on the cross. I don't believe he rose from the dead. I don't believe any of that, even though it's all found in here. I don't believe any of it. Say, so, oh yeah, here's the practical application, okay? Let me ask something. Were you there? Were you there? Were you there? What are you going to say? No. Well, then I say this. Guess what? The people that were there recorded it. It's accurate. It's reliable. It passes every test of historicity that we use for every other historical document. It's as real as everything else that we know in our history books that we accept as valid. Can I ask you one last question? Were you there? No. Well, who do you think you should believe? You who weren't there or those who were there. But it's up to you. See, because you have that choice. You could be like Oliver Stone. You believe whatever you want to believe. And it doesn't matter what the facts say. Believe whatever you want to believe. And we deal with people all the time around us who are just like that. Well, I don't care what the evidence is. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And you know what? And that's their freedom to do so. But all that I know is this. The Bible tells me to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in my heart. Always ready, in season and out, to be able to give a defense for the hope that is within me. I know it's based on faith. And I know it's based on hearing the Word of God because you can't believe unless you hear. And all of that is true. But I also know this, that this book is reliable it's accurate, it's relevant, and it has the words of life. And it is a place to turn when you're having some tough times. And it is a place to give you guidance in your marriage, and in your business, and in your life. And it is a place to give you an answer on what's going to happen to you after you die. And it is a place that's all those things and much, much more. Where do you turn for the final authority in your life? It is a lighthouse that will keep you from crashing against the rocks. You may not like what it says, but you never believe this, that it's accurate. It's trustworthy and it's dependable. I like what... Um, let me close with this. This is a quote. Josh McDowell says this, If a person discards the Bible as unreliable in this sense, then he or she must discard almost all the literature of antiquity. One problem I constantly face is the desire on the part of many to apply one standard or test to secular literature and another to the Bible. We need to apply the same test whether the literature under investigation is secular or it's religious. Having done this, I believe we can say without any question, the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable in its witness about Jesus Christ. Dr. Clark H. Pinnock, a professor of systematic theology at Regent College, states this, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. I am not going to believe it because I don't want to believe it. Now, let me ask you this last question. <laughs> if we're sending people all over the world to translate this book into their language, 
and spending millions and millions of dollars and spending a lot of man hours and woman hours to do it. And we can't wait to get it in the hands of other people so that they'll have a lighthouse to live their life by. Then when are we going to start using it for the same thing? When are we going to start to pick it up and say, this is the voice of God. Do this. Stop doing that. If you love me, you obey my commandments. And the only place you find them is right here in the rule book. Everything important in life we put in writing. Everything. And God has done the same thing. He's put it in writing. We're trying to get it in everybody else's hands. We've got one accessible every day. And many of us don't read it, nor do we bother turning to it when we need to make a decision in life. How ironic that is, isn't it? It's really strange. When are you going to believe that it's the authority of God? Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this opportunity just to go through and look at how reliable this book is. Lord, we thank you for its reliability. We thank you for its authenticity. Lord, we thank you that it passes all the tests that are used for every other historical document that we claim and believe to be true. God, help us to understand the importance and the significance of what we talked about today particularly as it pertains to sharing with others around us. To be able to intelligently answer their questions and their, their skepticism. To be able to help them see that it's a reliable source of information. God, we just thank you for giving it to us, for taking the time to get it into our hands, for translating it into a language that we understand. Father, I just pray right now that each one of us who claim to be your children can look at this as the authoritative voice of yours to tell us what to do and what not to do, to give us direction in life and hope for the future and encouragement in difficult times, to be a crutch that we can lean on that's sturdy and reliable and dependable and has withstood the test of time. What a remarkable book. God, help us to start to believe what you say and to begin to do it in our lives. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. We'll kind of pick up where we left off and take it in. A